And welcome in to Studio 2 on Wednesday, July 26th. I'm Avi wolfman Errant. Hi, Avi. I'm Cherry Gray. Hi, Cherry. <laughs> we are talking about Airbnbs today and what the short-term rental market does to communities when it comes to noise, safety, affordable housing, and so much more. Officials in Philadelphia directed companies like Airbnb and VRBO this month to deactivate unlicensed properties from their sites. Do you prefer Airbnbs when it comes to travel? What do you think about Airbnbs in your neighborhood? Email us, you know it, studio2 at whyy.org. That's the email. Studio2 at whyy.org. Councilmember Mark Squilla has been leading the push here in Philly to regulate Airbnbs. We're also going to hear from him this hour and a short-term rental expert. In a couple minutes, a veterinarian is going to tell us how to keep our pets cool in the heat. It's going to be a hot week, Cherry. Yeah, and Avi, I'm also looking to learning about sharks today. Sharks. Shark week. Yeah. Okay. I hope I am convinced to appreciate them a little more. We'll see. <laughs> Jury's out. Got we'll it. see. Jury is out. Yeah. Speaking but, of juries. Well. Yeah. And first things first, we're going to dig into this news a bit. Uh, Hunter Biden is in court today in Delaware. You heard that. He was expected to accept a plea deal. It's now apparently in jeopardy, according to reports. Hunter Biden was expected to plead guilty to misdemeanor tax charges, also to possessing a firearm while he was apparently uh, addicted to drugs. That deal would have allowed Hunter Biden to avoid jail time. He'd do probation for the tax charges and the firearm charge would have gotten stricken from his record if he avoided trouble for two years. But as part of the plea deal, you know, the judge asked a series of questions yep. Um, and now, apparently, according to the New York Times and other, um, you other know, sources, other yeah. sources, yeah, it's on the verge of collapsing. Uh, and we're ma- waiting for more information as we speak. One of those stories that is yeah. developing as we are on the air. So we don't have a lot more information to give you at the moment. But it's shocking because mm-hmm. typically these things are ironed out ahead of time. Both sides are on the same page about What's in the plea deal, what it means, mm-hmm. what are the future implications of it? And you know a lot more about the law than me, Cherry, but this is all pretty stunning. To me as a layperson, yeah. it's pretty stunning. But there's been a lot of pushback by Republicans. Mm-hmm. They've argued, you know, that Hunter Biden should be in more trouble than just this slap on the wrist. But, you know, I will say that the U.S. attorney in Delaware is a Trump appointee. Um, they say this was all on the up and up, but we don't know what the pushback is. We don't know yet. So this is still developing and, and we shall see. I think we do know that this was never going to be the end of the Hunter yes. Biden saga. Um, but legally, it yeah. seemed to be resolving, at least in this area. Mm-hmm. And now not so much. So we'll just keep our eye on it. We're also keeping our eye on a SEPTA. Yeah, There's a SEPTA sure. bus that crashed into a building, 16th and Walnut Street, right in the heart of the city last night. This is the fourth SEPTA-involved accident in just a week. You will recall one last Friday where Mm -hmm. two SEPTA buses collided on Roosevelt Boulevard. That caused 19 injuries, and sadly, a 72-year-old woman died as a result of that crash. So far this year, it's only July, there have been eight crashes involving multiple SEPTA vehicles, SEPTA-on-SEPTA crashes. That's more than all of last year and the year before, so it's something that SEPTA management says they are keeping their eye on. Yeah, and our it it's definitely raises a lot of questions mm-hmm. on what's going on. Our news partner, 6ABC, sat down with the chief 
Uh, the SEPTA's new chief safety officer, Ronald Keel, he says they are taking this extremely seriously. Invest, they're investigating exactly what happened. It's unclear if anybody will be disciplined at this point. Um, the unions for the trolley workers and the bus drivers have not said anything. Um, there's going to be more training, but lots of questions at this point. Lots of questions, but I'm going to add a little context, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Northwestern University economics professor Ian Savage looked at crash data over a decade and found that 7.3 people died in a car or truck for every billion passenger miles. That is 66 times the risk aboard a bus. Buses, I know these crashes are, they draw our attention for many reasons, one of which is because public transit is a public good and we all have some investment in it, Mm -hmm. but also because they're very large vehicles. But, I mean, I think it's just worth pointing out and reminding people that buses even we want them to be as safe as possible of course yeah but they are still far safer than getting in a car yeah it's very true um and so you know hopefully the injuries of the folks very minor um but typically this doesn't happen um right it's atypical it should draw it should draw our attention i just feel like you need that background as well because you can give people the false impression that it's not that it's very very unsafe to be on a Mm -hmm. septa bus when in fact the data shows that you are safer getting on that septa bus than you are getting into your own car yeah and uh if we were to get in the car and drive down to to delaware delaware your home okay yes um Cool this story is a great story. We have yeah, to I love this. this. A first edition of a letter from Christopher Columbus from the 15th century that was stolen decades ago from a library in Venice, Italy. It has been found by agents from Delaware. From Delaware. There you go. Okay. <laughs> this letter was <laughs> written by Christopher Columbus to Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain. It detailed what he said he found in the Americas. The letter was then reprinted and distributed in Latin, but the printer left Queen Isabella's name off the first edition. That's what made this letter so rare. Ice officials say it was stolen sometime in the 80s, and an unknowing collector bought the letter in 2003. It took you know, Homeland Security and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Wilmington working with experts 10 years to find this letter. Mm. Apparently, this letter is now back in Italy. It's worth more than $1.3 million. Kudos to the Wilmington office. Yes. So the Delaware connection is fascinating. The folks that work at this HSI, Homeland Security Investigations Office in Wilmington, Delaware, have kind of become like the national experts on tracking down artifacts like this. They've done stuff involving um, religious paintings, I believe diaries of a Mm -hmm. Nazi collaborator, all sorts of transnational art crime. They have been like the ones leading the investigation. Mm -hmm. So they're just kind of considered the best of class when it comes to this specific type of recovery. I also will note, it's been recovered and returned. Yes. We still don't know who stole we, yeah. this letter. And it was part of an seemingly an elaborate scheme mm-hmm. involving several letters like this mm-hmm. across Europe. I'm waiting for that movie to come out. That This could be a movie. And by the way, it's 10 agents in the office. So they're a small little group that ha- that's pie- uh, packing a mighty punch nationwide. Like, you I know. want another sequence. Yeah. They're never going to tell us. Of but they're, they're dang good at this very specific thing, and it makes for a very interesting newspaper copy. Um, in the last few weeks, um, it's been really hot mm-hmm. in our region, Cherry. There's no doubt about that. We're struggling to cool down at times. Our pets are dealing with the same heat issues. 
and the moist and hot conditions have led to an explosion in blue-green algae in local ponds and lakes, which can be toxic for our pets as well. So we're going to go to our newsmaker interview now to talk about how to keep our pets safe. Joining us on the line right now is Dr. Jules Benson. He is Nationwide's Vice President of Pet Health and Chief Veterinary Officer. Dr. Benson, thanks for joining us. Hey, Abby, how are you? I'm great. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Uh, Dr. Benson, we're about to enter a heat wave with temperatures expected to be in the upper 90s over the next few days. What should pet owners be thinking about as we work to keep our little friends safe? Well, I think it's a great topic because heat stroke is one of those things where as veterinarians, I think it's heartbreaking for us because it, it is so preventable. So a lot of the situations we see pets in when they get heat stroke are being in cars. So big no-no if it's hot outside, uh, never leave your pet in the car. Um, on an 85 degree day, for example, it only takes 10 minutes mm. for the inside of that car to reach over 100 degrees, even with the windows cracked. Um, so that's a that's a big one for us. Uh, and I always you know, tell people, try sitting in the car yourself for 10 minutes. We can sweat. Dogs can't. And they're wearing a fur coat, right? So think mm. about how, how how much more impact that has. So definitely don't leave dogs in the car. Um, limit uh, exercise outside and certainly off-leash uh, exercise during the hottest parts of the day. Try and walk those dogs during the cool parts uh, of the morning or the evening. Um, and be really careful about dogs that have, for example, French bulldogs or English bulldogs that have that, that smushed-in face. Um, our data, which did some really cool studies this year, um, they show that those dogs are five times more likely to submit claims of heat stroke than other wow. dogs. So really, really high risk. So I'm being careful. I'm walking my dog, but it's still, it's a little hot out. What sure. signs do I look for to make sure my pet is, is not overheating? Are there some tells that we can look for? Yeah, the first thing is you'll see is panting, right? So um, they talked about the, the lack of sweating. The, the way they lose heat mostly is through panting. So if your dog is panting much more than normal, and then the other signs that start to come in are things like weakness and vomiting. Um, certainly if you're seeing those things, get them inside, uh, give them access to some cool water. Um, if you're worried, you can certainly turn turn the hose on them. And again, stay away from cold water in these situations because the cold water can actually drive the blood deeper into their body and stop them from cooling down. Huh. So, so cold water, water cold water is bad. Cold water, and I think the temptation is to do things like ice baths, and that's not great for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's better to use tepid water and put a fan on them, and that way they can start to lose that heat more naturally through that transpiration. Um, but but certainly call your veterinarian. Um, these things can accelerate really quickly. As soon as your pet's uh, temperature gets over about 102 degrees, and you can keep a thermometer at home and, and, and use that, uh, as soon as it gets over 102 degrees, things can accelerate fairly quickly. So uh, getting making sure you have your veterinarian's number uh, in, in your speed dial. Speed, is that still a thing, speed dial today in 2013, <laughs> 2023? I think, have I think them in your favorites. Yeah, yeah, your favorites. Yeah, your favorites. It's your favorites. <laughs> um, but, uh, but ensuring you have that. And again, yeah, just uh, getting them inside, giving them access to some cool water uh, and seeing how things go. But uh, having a thermometer at home is is a really good way to see if you're at risk for heat stroke for those pets. And I have to ask you about these air quality alerts, you know, that Mm. typically accompany higher temperatures. Do the code orange or red alerts, uh, how, how do they impact your pets and what should you be looking for? really interesting. I mean, there's, there's some research out there that's kind of looking at this. And when we see the heavy fires in places like California or some of the smoke that's coming down from Canada more recently, um, there's not a lot of data on it. But again, physiologically, in the same way that we should be concerned for our own health, it makes sense that we should be concerned for our pet's health as well. 
So keep making sure they're inside if there are AQIs that are, are in those, you know, plus 50, plus 100, uh, keeping them inside, keeping the windows closed, making sure you have filtered air through the AC system. Um, so yeah, absolutely, you know, keep an eye on those. If the AQI is really high, just taking them outside for short potty breaks and then bringing them back into the, to the improved air quality indoors. All right. I got to get a question in for the cat people because I'm a cat person. <laughs> Shout out to CJ. I, I, Shout out I, to I CJ you. if she's listening at home. Um, I always wonder when I leave for a few days in the summer and, you know, we have a, a cat a cat sitter that comes by. Um, sure. But usually, you know, CJ's there by herself most of the day. Um, what temperature should I leave my house at when I go out of town? So um, we're, we're generally a 78, 80 type household okay. um, and don't really have any issues with that. So I, I think I, I think I love those people who keep their houses at 65 because it feels so good going inside. <laughs> but um, but we've, no, we've never had a problem with that 78, 80 degrees. Uh, that seems to be fine for cats and they'll find they'll all also find that sunny windowsill so they can heat themselves up as well, right? But yeah. um, cats tend to have you know maybe a little bit more sense about temperature regulation than dogs do sometimes. Yeah. I got to ask you, we've been hearing these reports about the blue-green algal blooms in some New Jersey mm-hmm. ponds. What is yeah. blue-green algae and how could it affect our pets? So blue-green algae, um, it has a, a toxin in it. So it's a toxin that can affect um, both the organs of the pet as well as the neurological system. There's no way to tell if an algal bloom is is toxic or not. That's the hard part of it. So I think the, the it tends to occur in warm or slow moving um, bodies of water full of nutrients. So a lot during the summer or the fall months, you, because you can't tell which blooms are toxic. The advice is really to t- to keep your dogs out of those bodies of water unless it's perfectly clear. And if you do see any signs of algal bloom, make sure you're washing them as quickly as possible. So it's a tricky one, just because we don't know which ones of those blooms are going to be toxic or not. It's really important to stay away from them. Sort of a better safe than sorry type yeah. of issue. Yeah, they, they can be they can be really toxic. I mean, again, it's it's not the most common thing. And certainly calling your vet's office and asking them if they've seen them, um, looking at the, the CDC or even the ArcGIS, some of the data that the government um, put out there, it's not always perfectly reported. So just kind of erring on the side of caution with those things. Um, Any signs that if your pet does, and we're wrapping up, so you don't have, have like 15 seconds. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, similar things, uh, the vomiting, um, any any signs that like um, rashes, um, any other things that can, uh, the, the staining on the fur is a good one, just to see if, there, if there's algae yeah. of them coming out of the pond, making sure they don't have access to lick that um, or, get, uh, or get it anywhere inside themselves. So yeah, uh, and if any basically we yeah. call this veterinary medicine ADR ain't doing right. So if they ain't doing right after we'll this swimming, uh, make sure make sure you talk to the vet. Thank you. Well, Dr. Jules Benson is doing right. Thanks so much for joining us on Studio Two. Dr. Benson is vice president of pet health and chief veterinary officer at Nationwide, and this is Studio Two. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back, everybody, to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erend. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, I'm more of a hotel girl myself. Oh, really? Yeah. But do you use hotels, or are you more into Airbnbs when you travel? More more on the Airbnb side of it, because I've had some great experiences with Airbnb over the years, although I will say... More recently, I've had fewer of those great experiences. Um, let's do something different today. I want to start the segment with a comment. 
from mm-hmm. Alice in South Philadelphia, because this really sums up how I feel. I used to be excited about going to Airbnbs because they were like little mini versions of the people that own them, lots of different personalities, etc. But now most of them feel like bland hotels where you have to make your own bed. Um, lately, I haven't been enjoying the experience because of that. And of course, knowing they are contributing to the housing crisis fuels a lot of guilt. And a lot of cities, not just Alice and me, a lot of cities, including Philadelphia, are thinking a little differently about Airbnbs and similar short-term rentals these days because of how maybe they impact neighborhood life, rental prices, and affordable housing. Yeah, Philly even passed regulations in 2021 for Airbnbs and other short-term rentals. At that point, there had been several incidents at so-called, quote, party houses. And now, two years later, the city is cracking down. They're telling Airbnb and VRBO to remove properties that do not have the proper licensing. New York, L.A., and San Francisco, they have even stricter regulations aimed at reducing the number of short-term rentals. David Walksmith is a professor of urban planning at McGill University and joins us now on the line to talk about all of this. Dave, welcome to Studio Two. Very happy to be here. We are so happy to have you. Later this hour, Councilmember Mark Squilla here in Philadelphia, who sponsored legislation to regulate Airbnbs, will join us. And of course, as always, we would love to hear from you. What do you think about Airbnbs in Philly or even down the shore? Email us, studio2 at org. And so, Dave, we want to dig into this by just laying uh, some type of a foundation, because I remember when Airbnbs first started becoming popular, most people just rented out their home if they were going away or rented out a room. And now they've sort of expanded. Can you give us an understanding of where the Airbnb market started and its growth to where we are now? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if we go back in time 10 or 15 years, what you're describing is exactly what Airbnb looked like. It was a platform for home sharing. So most of the um, offerings you see there were people's homes and they either had a spare bedroom or maybe they were traveling and, um, you know, were renting out their entire um, home while they were gone. Um, Every year I've been studying this issue. um, That type of home sharing has become less and less common on Airbnb. And instead, what we've seen is a real takeover by dedicated commercial short-term rentals, where it's not renting anybody's home, it's taking what used to be a home and converting it into effectively a kind of a small hotel. And so the concern with that, right, is that it drives up housing costs in, in cities. So does that drive up housing costs in cities or does that self-regulate in some way? Yeah, you know, this really is a kind of, you know, econ 101 idea where you've got a certain amount of housing in a city and you take some of it off the market and convert it to something else, in this case, short-term rentals. Um, Less supply, um, you know, that's going to lead to higher prices. And indeed, that's what pretty much all the research on this has found, is that um, the more commercial short-term rentals are active in a place, the higher rents get, um, the higher housing uh, prices get as well. And you can do cause and effect with that? It's not just correlative? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, there are all sorts of kind of fancy strategies for this. But the basic idea is you can kind of control for the reasons why people might want to kind of come to visit a place as a, um, you know, as tourists um, and separate that from other things which might have an impact on housing prices. And the, you know, the evidence like the big study that was done across the 100 biggest uh, cities in the United States 
um, you know, uh, which was looking at a period of time about 10 years ago, actually found that uh, they estimated that 20% of all the rent increases in the entire United States um, in a three-year period could be explained by the growth of Airbnb. Wow. Um, so, you know, that's one in five dollars of additional rent is because of uh, Airbnb. Wow. And so um, beyond, you know, the impact on housing prices, I've read that short-term rentals also lead to gentrification and shifts in neighborhood businesses. Can you explain how that broader impact and how that works and how and the correlation there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you think about the kind, you know, at a, at a very kind of nuts and bolts level, what's happening when Airbnb grows in a neighborhood? What you're basically talking about is replacing residents with tourists. You know, that's, you know, kind of fundamentally, right? That you've got apartments which otherwise could be housing local residents. Instead, now they're they're hosting visitors coming from um, elsewhere. And, you know, a couple of things are true about tourists. And this is no, you know, no offense. I'm a tourist sometimes. You know, we all are. <laughs> yep. um, but when you're traveling, you're likely to spend more money than when you're not traveling. You know, you've got a larger budget because it's a vacation um, or because, you know, your company's paying if it's a business trip. Um, you're also likely to spend money on different things. So both of those facts um, explain how Airbnb can transform neighborhoods. So first of all, in terms of you have more money to spend, that's part of why housing costs go up, right? Because if you're paying by the night and you're only going to visit for a week, you'll pay a little more than you'd be willing to pay if it were rent. Um, but also, you're much more likely to want to go to a restaurant. You're much less likely to want to go to a barbershop. Um, and so the actual kind of composition of neighborhood businesses t tends to change to match more what visitors want and less what local residents need. And can you give a little bit of an example like uh, like this business would now be this because there's more Airbnbs in a neighborhood? Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually been some kind of recent pretty interesting research about this. Um, one thing is that, you know, is that there's a kind of a set of what we call amenities, you know, things that people you know enjoy um, that you, where you're really likely to kind of consume a lot more of them when you're traveling. Um, and again, restaurants is a kind of at the top of that list. Of course, local you know residents go to restaurants as well, but they don't go as often. Um, so you're going to see more, uh, you know, a shift towards um, uh, more restaurants. You're going to see a shift away from kind of daily necessities type places, you know, um, grocery stores, um, you know, like I said, barbershops, you know, things that are kind of, um, that, that are really, you know, rely on how, on there being people living in the neighborhood who need to kind of, you know, take care of their daily needs. Um, and, and, you know, and actually the thing is that this is, you mentioned gentrification before, this is kind of a similar story with gentrification, right? That's a process where you have lower income residents get kind of pushed out of neighborhoods by upper income residents. And it's this, you see a same pattern, you know, that the kind of the, the cheap grocery store disappears, gets replaced with a fancy grocery store because it's a different set of, of, uh, of shoppers. And, you know, the same thing happens when you're talking about tourists. I want to bring in an email from Kristen who says, I like Airbnb, but I agree it's getting out of hand. You should have to live in the home 80% of the time in order to rent it out for the other 20%. So let's get into regulatory solutions. If, if, we, if we agree this is a problem, I'm not sure we do, but some people clearly do think this is a problem. What type of regulation actually works and what doesn't work? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think the, like, the key under idea here is to be clear that home sharing is a win-win, I think, for cities, you know, in the sense that um, cities thrive on having lots of people around doing lots of different things. And if, if I have a spare room in my house, or particularly if I'm, you know, traveling for a month, it, you know, it, it's, it's bad news if, if my home is just staying empty. Why not have someone 
live there. So home sharing itself is, you know, I think is, is a very, is clearly a positive. It's basically a positive in every respect. And there's, there's no reason that we would want to uh, restrict that or discourage it, uh, in my opinion. And I think that cities, you know, feel the same way. What, what regulations are targeting now is commercial short-term rentals, where the trade-offs are pretty clear, where you're, you're taking away housing from local residents um, and converting it into, you know, permanent tourist accommodation. So that's what regulations have focused on. And the simplest way to try to, um, to discourage the commercial stuff, but allow the home sharing stuff, is simply to say that you do, you know, just as the email says, you need to live in the in the home if you want to rent it out on Airbnb. Um, now, of course, it's all easier said than done because you have to figure out how to enforce that. But basically, cities across the U.S. and across the world actually are all kind of converging on that same idea. If it's your principal residence, you're free to Airbnb it as much as you want, you know, kind of within some reasonable limitations. If you don't live there, if it's not your principal residence, forget about it. Yeah. And if you are just tuning in, we're talking about Airbnb and short term rentals with David Walksmith, a professor of urban planning at McGill University who studied this issue um, in various cities. And I want to sort of as we extend this conversation about regulation, I got to ask you about some quality of life issues, because a lot of lawmakers had their um, coattail pulled on the issue of Airbnbs because of nuisance reports. Can you talk about what has been happening in neighborhoods around Airbnbs when it comes to just the quality of life when it when people rent these short term rentals? Absolutely. So, you know, I started studying this issue in New York City. And, um, you know, which is one of the, the kind of early big markets for Airbnb. And if you, you know, if you've ever been to New York City, what you know is that if you're, the tourists tend to go to Times Square. That's where, you know, where Broadway is. It's where it's the kind of heart of, of tourism in New York. And it's an area that's just full of hotels, right? So now there are also apartments there. And a lot of those apartments were kind of early Airbnbs because it was a big market for it. You know, people want to stay near Broadway. Um, they'll stay in Airbnb. Maybe it's cheaper. That doesn't really pose a lot of quality of life issues because you're already dealing with a neighborhood that has tons and tons and tons of visitors where, you know, it's a Tuesday night, but it's midnight and they're still looking to have a good time, you know, when, you know, the neighbors want to be asleep. Um, In a neighborhood like Times Square, who cares about that? It's already the kind of character of the neighborhood. The issue is that Airbnb has since grown quite a lot in neighborhoods that aren't like Times Square, where actually most of the people are living and they got to wake up for work the next morning. They don't want a bunch of noise. Um, they know how, when the garbage pickup happens and when it doesn't happen, where tourists might not, um, and where they frankly don't want a big party you know, happening at a house um, down the street. So these are the kinds of nuisance issues um, that Airbnb has been strongly associated with. There's kind of stuff around noise, uh, quality of life. There are also you know, it, um, there are issues around crime that have come up as well. And it really just comes down to the fact that you know, kind of a lot of the way that urban planning works, that cities kind of regulate uh, land use, is to say that there's some kind of uses which make sense in residential areas, and there are other kinds of uses which don't. And on the whole, we don't permit a whole ton of hotels in residential neighborhoods because we understand that visitors have kind of, you know, different lifestyles from residents, and maybe it's useful to separate them. If you want to email us and join the conversation, by the way, studio2 at org is the email address. The flip side of that, however, Dave, is that, you know, the traditional mode of travel and staying in another city was that you had to go probably to the downtown area and stay in a big box, which was a hotel, and you really didn't get a flavor of the city, and you were sort of this clueless traveler. And I think one of the hopes of Airbnb is that it would give people a truer sense of where they're visiting and and a greater appreciation for the place that they're visiting. I mean, do we want to legislate that out of the travel experience entirely? You know, this is a great question. And 
I guess my answer to this is that it's important to tr- figure out, you know, cities have to figure out how they want to balance the interests of visitors and the interests of residents. Um, I'll be clear about this, that I, you know, I had a phone call once with a, a city councillor uh, in a city here up here in Canada where they were saying, hey, do we need to worry about this Airbnb business? And I looked at the numbers there and said, you know, you've got a huge vacancy rate. Um, you know, you've got low rents. The problem in the city isn't that there's too much demand for your housing. If, if Arguably, it's the opposite. And so go nuts with Airbnb. Why not? It's better to have something happening in those buildings than nothing. The problem right now is that Philadelphia, like, you know, frankly, pretty much every other city, um, has, has the opposite issue. They have the issue of there's too much demand for housing and not enough housing out there. So in those situations, I mean, I think you're right that there's something appealing about as a visitor, as a traveler, being able to stay in a residential neighborhood. The question is, should the city of Philadelphia weight that interest more strongly than the interest of Philadelphia residents being able to have an affordable apartment to live in. Yeah, and I want to bring in right now, uh, David, stick with us, because we're going to bring in Philadelphia City Council Member Mark Squilla, uh, who sponsored uh, legislation that passed in 2021 that helps regulate Airbnbs and short-term rentals. He's here on the line. Welcome to Studio Two. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I want to talk about your legislation, which w- was passed in 2021, but uh, has now is now being enforced. Tell us uh, about this legislation and what exactly does it do? All right. First, the, the impetus came actually because of uh, the uh, concerns we had from residential neighborhoods with the short term rental uh, use. And it mainly was uh, uh, revolve around a lot of party issues and, and uh, Airbnbs and Expedia, all, all the platforms that you have. And the people were using them for one-day rentals, uh, mainly for, you know, events and parties that they would normally not have, um, you know, in, in a hotel or something else, and they could just use that facility. And then it was negatively impacting the surrounding residential communities. Um, and so that was the start of it. And so the idea was, how do we regulate the use so that the residents in the community understand what properties are used for short-term rentals, making sure they have guidelines of when they put out trash, you know, what nuisances, uh, if, if there are nuisances, how do we get in touch with these property owners to address them? So regulating them, work with the Airbnb and some other platforms to come up with the legislation so that they would be licensed. And therefore, having those licenses would then re- uh, enable the city to you know, allow the the short-term rentals that we know are operating uh, to operate fine. And the ones who are nuisances is able to go down there. And if there are a lot of problems, to be able to pull those licenses over time. So to do that, the legislation was introduced to 2021. Uh, we did push back enforcement twice mm-hmm. to allow uh, people the timeline to be able to apply for the uh, short-term rental license and uh, people who would need a variance would be able to go through that process through the zoning board. And so now they are into the enforcement stage where if you do not have a short-term rental license that Al and I would work with those platforms to remove those folks from the platform until they are able to receive a license. Uh, And in the meantime, you know, they could still use these properties for rentals, but they would have to be for 30 days or longer or you know, a yearly rental or, or things like that, but they would not be able to use them for short-term rentals until they received all the proper and, and licenses. I know you have to run uh, quickly here, Councilmember Squilla, but I do want to ask you, what would you say to short-term rental operators who say this is onerous? 
I would say it's not onerous. It's a business uh, that you're operating. You know, the, uh, the city has to know what uh, properties are uh, licensed for short-term rentals. And, you know, we're looking also uh, as a, a global part of the cities as far as marketing where we could say we have so many short-term rentals we have 2026 coming in philadelphia we want to make sure all our people are licensed properly and acting properly um and so that uh you know we figured we give them enough time to be able to do this um it is a business you know these properties are used as a business if it's not if it's just your regular single family home you can get these licenses right over the counter so it's it's not a problem if you live there and you want to rent out a room in your um, in your home or in your residence, you could do that pretty quickly. If it isn't, if it's a single family home uh, that you want to have, then you would have to go through a, a zoning variance process, which d- does take a little bit of time. But in any business that's coming into the city of Philadelphia, they have to go through the same type of processes. And if you are in a CMX3 zone property, uh, you could also do it by right. So you could get it because a uh, hotel use is allowed on those type of properties and you could um, easily obtain uh, a short-term rental license there, and so the, the city can provide it. But uh, the other thing that I did here, which was of concern, is a lot of the, you know, the reduction of housing available for residents and people living in the city of Philadelphia and the affordability of it. And so that was also a, a concern that we were seeing, that we were losing a lot of uh, residents from the marketplace yeah. uh, who were turning them into short-term rentals. And we want to make sure that we also have it so that those folks have places to also rent and yeah. stay in the city and work in the city. So it's really a twofold approach that we're taking. But if people do want to have short-term rental licenses, I think the timeline that we provided and like you heard in 2021 that it was introduced, there's been plenty of time uh, to yeah. go through this process to have it done and completed. Thank you so much uh, for your time. That was uh, Philadelphia City Council Member Mark Squilla, who sponsored legislation that Uh, requires Airbnb and other short-term rentals to uh, get licensing. Um, And David Walksmith, uh, professor of urban planning at McGill University, who studies this issue, is still with us. Um, I want to ask you, David, to to just respond to what Councilmember uh, Squilla had just said. Any reaction to it? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, what he he laid out makes a lot of sense and honestly sounds very similar to what I've been hearing in cities across the country, um, which is that, you know, kind of recognizing that short-term rentals, the way they're being operated now, it is a business. And at minimum, if you're going to operate that kind of business, you need to have the right permits and the city needs to be able to keep track. Um, The thing that I would really want to emphasize, you know, again, is this kind of home sharing piece, which is that there's, you know, that the way the Airbnb used to operate, it really wasn't a business. You know, I mean, the company's a business, but for individual hosts, it's, you know, it's something extra to do on the side. And I think that uh, cities should do everything that they can to encourage more of that kind of activity and less of the, hey, I've got a whole apartment building here. Let's see how much money we can make. Um, I want to bring in an email here from Jeff who says some people at CHOP, that's the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, or Penn, cannot stay in a hotel because of their immune system. He says they have to find... Uh, stay, stay isolated. It's difficult already to find short-term rem- rentals in the area around those hospitals. I, I know that's very specific. That's quite niche. But, uh, Dave, there, there are certain markets outside of just the, the typical tourist market that these short-term rentals have been able to serve. Should there not be some place for them? Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, I think that, that that's a good example of, um, you know, where short-term rentals can be really valuable. And, that, you know, again, to be clear, like, 
I, you know, I, I don't stay in short-term rentals. I have a bit of a conflict of interest because of my research. <laughs> but, you know, back before I did this research, I used to because I have, you know, two, you know, young kids at the time and a hotel room's a nightmare, right? Um, so, you, I, you know, I just want to emphasize it's really a question of we, we recognize what are all the kind of good reasons why people may want to use this type of accommodation. The point is that the city has to balance those reasons with what we now know are the pretty clear costs of letting you know housing that could otherwise be you know housing long-term residents operate you know short-term instead. So it's not a question of saying you know th- this is all bad, so we should ban it. It's a question of saying there are costs and there are benefits, yeah. and we have to balance those. Yeah, and we want to of course hear from someone who uh, owns short-term rentals. So we have Brian on the line who owns short-term rental properties. Brian, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And so we, yes, and we want to hear from you. What what exactly, how are these new regulations impacting your business? Well, as you, as you said, I'm a short term rental host and I have a couple properties. And and I think it's very interesting that we just touched on uh, the fact with uh, shopping pen. I'm actually one of those operators uh, that actually focuses on um, patients that come into the city and have immune deficiencies and, Man, there's so many, there's so many thank you letters that I was getting um, in the process of moving forward with this. But recently, because they've seen what's been happening with the news, a lot of people are worried because, again, they want to stay in a place where they don't have to be around. Other hotels don't work because when you have immune deficiency, you can't be around all these people. And so this is giving them a space to where they can be in a space by themselves and, and they're worried about the future. So, so, so this is really how it's impacting me, actually. Yeah, so Brian, I think uh, someone listening might say, well, why don't then you just get the license, yeah. take, get it taken care of, and then you can continue to operate your business. Is it not that simple? It's not because it's these, a, a lot of these are with the zoning, with the CMX3, um, because these are some of the properties are in CMX, but also when you're around Penn and Shop, there's a lot of places that they were coming that were residential. That's the problem. And trying to get the variance, uh, which I went through before, uh, it took about, say, about almost two years. And then also the, uh, the amount of money for each listing can be about, on average, around $2,000, which I have no problem putting up, but I got denied. Um, and so it makes it, it makes it hard. And I actually have the capital to do it, but the majority of the people that are in these areas don't have the capital. Sorry, sorry I just want to clarify that. It took you two years to get the, the zoning variance? Close, close to two years going going through this variance, yes. Were you given any explanation why it took that long? Um, my I, I haven't really been given a, a real explanation. My honest my honest issue is when I my one of the biggest issues I see because I heard schoolers say that you know it's very simple to get these licenses and stuff even if you're in the correct zoning. The problem is <clears throat> when you I'm not saying about now. Maybe it's a little bit better now, but I started early. A lot of employees down there didn't even know what was going on, and they had to ask other people. So it's not clear across the board, um, even people down at LNI as far as what to do. So there's a lot of confusion. That's just my guess, honestly. Yeah. And so we're going to have to leave it there. Brian, thank you so much for sharing your perspective uh, on short-term rentals. Probably. All right. And we've been speaking with David Walksmith, professor of urban planning at McGill University. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for being on Studio 2 today. It's been my pleasure. And we also heard uh, from Philadelphia City Council Member Mark Squilla, who sponsored legislation um, requiring uh, 
short-term rentals and Airbnbs to get licenses. Lots to still talk about here. There's so um, much, and it's a fascinating conversation, Sherry. Clearly, there are people who rely on this who benefit from it. There are travelers who like it, but we cannot ignore that it's also causing some issues, and I think we were able to braid together all those yeah. perspectives today. Perhaps another segment coming on this topic in the future. But we do have another co- segment coming up right now. We do. And it's all about sharks. We're Stay diving into us. the ocean <laughs> on Studio 2. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. This is Studio Two. I am Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg. And this is Shark Week. (laughs) I like saying stuff like that. Anyway, (laughs) for 35 years, the Discovery Channel has been Uh. celebrating this week long TV event. And it is therefore the longest running cable television program programming event in history. That's a fact I didn't know. I did not know that either. Cherry, the idea behind it originally was to highlight conservation efforts and to correct misconceptions about sharks. But over the decades, the programming has been criticized for sensationalism. So we thought we need to bring some clarity into Mm. the deep sea. Dominique Didier joins us now. She is a professor of general biology, aquatic biology, and ichthyology at Millersville University. (laughs) How'd I do there, Dominique? Pretty good. Not bad. Welcome to Studio Two. Nice to be here. So, um, Dominique, most people think they know what a shark is, you know, um, but but when I read that there were hundreds of different classes of, you know, uh, types of shark, I was shocked. So could you explain what a shark is and some of the characteristics that make a shark a shark? Sure. Happy to do so. So when you say shark, most people put in their mind right away, like a great white, hammerhead, maybe a nurse shark or a lemon shark. And those are sharks. But the group that sharks belong to is a group known as the chondrichthys. It's a fancy word for saying cartilaginous fishes. And so all of the fish that have a skeleton made of cartilage, which is a very flexible material, unlike bone, which is very stiff, um, all the fish that have cartilage belong in this group. And that includes not just what I call the sharky sharks that we all think about, (laughs) but things like stingrays and skates, which are very flat. um, And also my personal favorite, which are the ghost sharks. And that's really where I study these ghost sharks. So they're very diverse. There's over a thousand species within this large cartilage fish group. Um, And they're not all just like sharks that you think about on TV or in cartoons, but some of them are flat. Some of them are very tiny. Um, And the ghost sharks are very strange looking. So look up a ratfish or a chimera and you'll be amazed. Well, I had a whole another list of questions, but now I got to know what a ghost shark is. What's a ghost? A ghost shark. Are they hard to see? Oh, yes. They live in the very deep sea. Um, And they've not been well studied because they're so hard to find. They live in all the oceans. But when I talk deep sea, I'm talking about thousands of meters. That is thousands and thousands of feet, like let's say 3,000, 4,000 feet deep. So you're not going to just catch these on a hook and line. Mm. Well, you know, you like many shark lovers argue that humans should not be afraid of sharks. Instead, we should like, no, love sharks because they are important to the ecosystem. I want you to lay out your argument there, how we should love sharks. Go ahead. All right. Well, we should just love them because they are beautiful animals worthy of love. But 
Um, what we have to remember is that, you know, the ocean is an ecosystem, just like on land. Maybe many of you took a biology class and you learned that, you know, the animals eat the grass and other animals eat those animals and the bugs and the hawks at the top eating the small mammals and so on. And we learn about these food chains and the important interconnections. And it's very real to us because we can see it every day. Walk out your front door. You can see all those interactions. But the ocean is mysterious. When you look at that blue water, it's hard to see and understand that all these things that live in the ocean are interconnected. Everything from the tiny little single cell plankton and then the little organisms that eat those and the little fish that eat those and then the bigger fish that eat those and so on. Well, sharks are at the top of that food chain, if you will, or that food web. So by having animals that have different roles in the ecosystem, you maintain balance in that ecosystem. But if we wipe out all those sharks, which are those top predators, that throws things in imbalance. Then you have too many of another predator that might eat the fish that we want to eat, etc. So we have to remember that all those animals are there and play a, an important role in maintaining that ecosystem. Let's be a little parochial here and talk about the sharks that live off of our coast, the Atlantic Ocean, off of you know New Jersey, New York, the Mid-Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Are those shark populations generally stable, declining, rising? What do we know? They're declining. Um, absolutely. Uh, research has shown, and this was some significant research published quite a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was 2005 in Science Magazine. And they looked at uh, records of particularly the large pelagics, white sharks, um, the mako sharks, the blue sharks, um, tiger sharks, you know, the big ones that migrate and live all along this eastern coast and found that every single population had declined. Mm -hmm. And we're talking declines on average of 60%. Wow. What, so were the, we're what were the main causes? The main cause is overfishing. We're killing them. Mm. Really? Because you don't think of of us eating. Well, maybe, maybe people do, but you don't think of it as like a, a big menu item, but yet they're being killed by humans. Yeah, well, they we do eat them. Um, you know, uh, mako shark is uh, on yeah. menus, yeah. but we're not big shark eaters in this country, no. But what really killed them? Well, first of all, um, a lot of people had fear of them, so they wanted to go out and hunt them, like the white shark after the movie Jaws. Mm. Um, but they're also, you know, because they're large and you know very fantastic looking. I mean, a big game fisherman who yeah. doesn't want to. Them, the, yeah. who doesn't want to go out and you know tackle an 800 pound mako and land it and win a prize so there were these huge huge shark fishing tournaments that used to go on um, scientists have really worked hard to eliminate those or have them catch and release um, but at a time there was a time when boat after boat would land these you know i'm talking 800 pound sharks and then they would have a big garbage truck there and they would just throw them in the garbage wow. truck wow. And maybe they'd cut off the head and keep the jaws and things like that but was a horrible waste of animals. Yeah. And so I, I want to tell you, I know that shark human interactions are fairly rare, but it seems like we're having more. Um, could you talk about why it's with the shark population going down? It seems like we're having more interactions and, and what we as humans should do to avoid these interactions. Well, what we have to remember is if, if you look at graphs that show increasing numbers of people on vacation, and increasing interactions mm. with sharks, they directly correlate. So yeah. one, we're in their habitat. More and more pe people are vacationing, going to the beach, going to the shore. We just have more population. 
I mean, 50% of our population lives within like 100 miles of a coastline. So um, we're living near their environment and in, and going in their environment for recreation, for swimming, you know, scuba diving, et cetera. So that's one, we're encountering them. Um, and number two, and this is where we don't have as much data, but um, I'm sure if you've looked at the news, you're seeing, you know, um, information about the heat waves and climate change mm-hmm. and the ocean temperatures rising. So we're affecting their environment in diverse ways. Um, and so we still don't quite understand how that's going to affect their behavior and how that's going to affect where they move, where is their prey. So I think there's a combination of factors that are influencing these changes um, in why we encounter them more. Lastly, I'll just add too: we have access to news 24-7, right. a million different mm-hmm. right. pictures, streaming, Instagram, photographs, retweeting, reposting. So that also kind of heightens that awareness with you know, one story gets like five. Yeah, it, get, it, get ampl- it gets amplified. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just about 30 seconds. Just want to geek out for a second. Give me one thing that's happening right now in your field that really excites you. Something we're learning that's new. Oh, my gosh. There's so much that we're learning. Uh, one thing that that I really am involved in is describing new species. Mm. We're finding new species all the time. Wow. New species of ghost sharks. Um, I've described with my colleagues 17 new species. I mean, just in, you know, the last two decades. Um, So and we're finding new species of sharks, new species of stingrays. So I think what to me is very exciting is all this diversity that's out there that we had no idea about and that we're just learning about. So I guess to me, that's I guess that is kind of geeked out. But that's what excites me. That is exciting. That is extremely exciting. And we're so excited that you joined us today. That is Dominique Didier, (laughs) professor of general biology, aquatic biology and ichthyology at Millersville University. Thanks for being on Studio 2. Well, thank you. And Avi, I think the jury's in now. I think I like sharks. You like sharks. I like sharks. There you go. And we love all of you, our <laughs> listeners. This is the end of our show today. Our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. For more of our show, head to whyy.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I am Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg. Be sure to rate and review. And thank you so much for joining us. Never a trace of